Hello, it's Andrew May, and welcome to the Performance Intelligence Podcast, Bite Size Edition. This is where we take a clip from a previous podcast and amplify it for you in a snack-sized format. Optimize performance through adapting your physical, psychological, and emotional state. In this Bite Size from episode number 80, Author, organizational psychologist, and entrepreneur Amantha Imba walks us through the steps she took to write her new book, The Health Habit, and she wrote this in record time. Now, as an author, when Amantha told me the timelines she had and she achieved on this book, I was really impressed. Amantha unpacks how she writes a book, how she researches ideas, and how she works to be as productive as possible. Amantha also walks us through how she puts all of this into practice in her life to feel her best and to work as productively as possible. We also discuss the science of changing habits and how the habit-changing process isn't as easy as some people think. New book, The Health Habit, Shape Up, Sleep Better and Feel Amazing. Gosh, I needed this. Where were you five or seven years ago, Amantha Rimba, when I needed to shape up, sleep better, feel amazing? I had to sort all this shit out myself. It's hard sorting this out yourself. (laughs) It is, it is. Um, so like I I'm just so passionate about health. It's almost like it's a priority for me. It's my top value. And and so writing the book has been or was, because it's it's written now, was amazing to be able to go, oh, now I can incorporate one of my biggest passions into what I'm actually doing uh on the work front. Do you write books as a reflective process to catch up with changes you've made? changes you might need to make? Or do you write books for the market at the right time to get maximum amount of appeal? Or, knowing you, it's never black or white, right? It's either or, it's and. It is. So I can share with you how I came up with the idea for this book. Oh, do, do, do. Yeah. yeah. So I actually felt a, a bit of pressure to come up with my next book quite quickly. So with my previous three books, there was years between each of them. But my last book time-wise was published through Penguin and it sold really well. And, um, you know, Penguin were happy and the team were happy and I was happy. And my my agent said, look, you know, you should probably try to come up with your next concept quickly and, you know, capitalize on the excitement around time-wise. And she said, you've probably got about a six-month window, so come up with something. So this is six months from when you published TimeWise? From or? when it launched into the world. So I was kind of still in the middle of TimeWise publicity and and my head was not in the game of what's next, that I was just feeling a little bit of pressure and thought, okay, that's a really fair point. So I am... Um, I'm going to think about that. And I, you know, I was thinking, I spent lots of time thinking and having discussions with my agent and I sort of landed on things that felt logical and sensible and would probably have sold well, but I just wasn't feeling super excited about them. And then I remember one day I had this thought because, because I am passionate about health, but I don't really do much around health in the work sense. I thought, well, you know, there's all these books about health and I love reading health books. And it occurred to me one day, I think I was in the shower and just having just like random thoughts. And it's like, there's all these books about health. And and I know for me, I will buy a book about health and I'll read it and I'll think, oh, that was really cool. And then I'll 
maybe try to implement something, but inevitably the habit won't stick. And then I'll next month I'll be out buying the next latest health book and and so on and so forth. And I think this is what a lot of people do. They'll buy a book about health, whether that's how to, um, you know, shape up, get fit, lose weight, um, sleep better or whatever the sort of problem that they're trying to solve is. And they'll read the book and they'll like the book and that's why it becomes, you know, it sells well, but they won't actually make sustainable change. So there's all these health books. And at the same time, there's this whole other section of the bookstore around habit change and how to change behavior and, you know, books like Atomic Habits and Tiny Habits and How to Change. And these are all books that I love and have read. But I, I was having this thought, I'm like, why hasn't anyone combined these two concepts? Because when you read a book about improving your health, which ultimately involves habit change, you kind of need a companion book about how do you actually create permanent lasting change when you're talking about your habits? And so I thought, wouldn't it be great to bring that together to go, what are some of the most impactful but underutilized evidence-backed strategies that we can use to eat better, sleep better and move better and combine that with understanding, well, how can I, with my unique barriers as an individual, apply the latest science in behavioral change to make those new health habits stick. And so that was the idea that I got really excited about. I then pitched it to uh, my publishers at Penguin. They got excited about it. And here we are, I think about a year and three months after I pitched it, which I should add is I was working to very tight deadlines, uncharacteristically tight I feel tight anxiety deadlines. for you because I've got my next book bubbling away and MatchFit was three years ago. So that's a fair bit in between books. So to actually do that, having done the process, and for anyone listening, if you haven't written a book, one, you should, and two, don't underestimate how much work it is because it really is from initial concept and then writing and then editors and right to the finished product. That's a really, really tight timeline. Yeah, yeah. And the reason why it was so tight, like you commented, that the timing of the release of the book is fortuitous. It, it came out on January 9th and there was a reason for that. Penguin said, this makes sense to release it then, so let's just work backwards in terms of deadlines. And so I, I remember it was um, it was the day of my work Christmas party in 2022 that I got the call to say we would love to publish this book and then it was about negotiating the deadlines for uh, when the first draft of the manuscript was due and then obviously all the editing that then goes into it after that and um, and, and all, the, all the things that kind of happen behind the scenes before a book hits bookshelf. So it was, um, it was a very intense year of work. <laughs> Are you planning an upcoming conference or company offsite? For the past 15 years, I've averaged speaking at over 50 events each year and I still love presenting at conferences as much as I did when I first started. To explore the different presentations I offer on a range of topics and themes, including physical and psychological well-being, becoming burnout-proof, connection and belonging. That's a new area I'm, I'm really enjoying presenting on. Neuroscience and behavior change, mental skills and leadership and culture. Or if you'd like to understand our fully integrated conference experience with pre-event diagnostics, activities throughout the agenda, including the morning wake-up, energy breaks, team-building activities, and digital resources to embed learning. To find out more information and to download a brochure, go to andrewmay.com slash keynotes. Oh, 
going back into CEO of the business you founded, having stepped aside and you're still consulting, working in, working on amantha.com, writing a book, a podcast that goes around the world. I'm sure you're in good shape. You must sleep well and you must feel amazing just to handle this workload. And that's obviously the, the sizzle, right? When you feel good, you operate well. And yeah, as a psychologist, uh, my first training was as an exercise phys, and I can remember. So as a psychologist, you'll get this. This is going back 25 years ago, Amantha. One of my mates, Dano, back then, said, I'm going out with this new girl, Louise, lovely girl, and she's a psychologist. And we all went, what do you talk about? Like, we're the fitness gang. Like, yeah, we do push-ups and talk about interval training, everything. What, what do you have in, in common with a psychologist? I apologize because I was so ignorant back then, thinking you know, we owned the domain as exercise physiologist on the body and psychologist owned the domains on thinking and schema. Gosh, how wrong I was, because the two are just so interconnected. Hippocrates, two and a half thousand years ago, he knew this. You know, a healthy body and good nutrition is the platform for a sound mind. It just took neuroscience to get the psychologist talking to the exercise physiologist. Hallelujah. <laughs> I know. I know. I Like, I, I feel the same way. It's funny, when I was... Uh it was maybe 19 years old. I was doing my undergrad psychology then and I had this random thought, like I would occasionally visit gyms, I think, but I wasn't particularly into exercise then. But I just thought, you know, there's this whole industry of personal training and fitness professionals and they learn all about the body. But I mean, the majority of it is about the mind and about motivation and understanding mindset. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool to be a psychologist who was also a personal trainer? And so I did my PT quals, you know, when I was did you? 19. Yeah, yeah. Because I thought, oh, that'll be a great career being a, a PT who's also a psychologist. I mean, needless to say, I didn't end up following that path, but I, I you know, I had, I had that thought, um, yes, many years ago. So I did personal training because I was a, an athlete and I used to, my joke is I used to take over weight people for walks. I've got to be very conscious where I say that because not everyone sees the humor in it, but it, it was my job and people would lose 15, 20 kilos and then they had businesses. This was when I was in Hobart and then that opened up a whole different revenue and, and opportunities. But then I realized the model that I had, which was quite didactic from sport and athletes want to make the team. Whereas a lot of people don't. They don't have a team that they're trying to make. So when you say it's my way or the highway, they're often taking the highway. So the didactic, here you go, rev everyone up, Gordon Ramsay approach as a personal trainer didn't work. So I went and did a master's in coaching psychology because I needed to learn how to have a broader range of conversations with people who weren't as motivated as athletes. So interesting, you went the the brain body way first. I went the body way and then realized, hey, I'm limited. This is limited. I need to get both. Yeah. So combining yes. both in this book, give us give us a couple of tips. So someone who's listening to this, what, what's one tip from Shape Up that excites you the most? So it could be a tip you researched or it could be something you've brought into your routine. Because reading your book and going through it, as I said before, I picked it up and like, looked up, it's midnight, and I got engrossed and, and I was running the parallel port, one going, oh, this is really good. And then the second bit, oh, I like what she's done there. I think I know where she's trying to take the read. So I, I was looking at on that, you know, what you're saying, but also what you're doing and, and you got me. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Um, well, look, something that is, now this is like, look, it's, I, th I think it's in the the movement section, but it, like it kind of crosses over into nutrition as well, but it is a movement strategy. So I, in the last few years, have become very into 
uh, monitoring blood glucose levels. So essentially, yeah, what my blood glucose is doing after I eat certain foods or do certain activities. And so I have taken to running experiments on myself where I'll wear a CGM, continuous blood glucose monitor, um, which is which is basically, yeah, if you think about like a flattened ping pong ball that has a needle that sticks into your skin, and then it's almost like you've got a scanner, like a, a thing to be scanned on your um, which you then scan with your mobile phone and then the, the um, accompanying app gives you a reading of what is your blood glucose doing. And, you know, pretty much all health practitioners agree that you ideally want to have a blood glucose a level that's fairly flat, like peaks, massive peaks, massive troughs are not good. That is why we feel we have like sugar highs and sugar crashes. I'm sure we've all experienced that. And and there are um, a lot of other very bad health implications if your blood glucose levels are all over the place that, you know, puts you at greater risk of diabetes and cardiovascular disease um, and things like that that you want to avoid. So I have run a lot of experiments to look at what can I do to have those be those levels be as flat as possible. And one of the things I write about in The Health Habit is the impact of going for a short 10-minute walk about half an hour after you eat. What's really great about this is that, yes, you can change what you eat to flatten out um, the, the blood glucose uh, rise that typically happens after you consume food, but you can actually do a lot with how you move your body after you eat. So something that I try to do, and again, I don't do this religiously, but I know that when I do it, it has an impact and it makes me feel better and it like levels out my energy so I'm not crashing after a meal, is I will just go for a simple walk around the block about half an hour after I've eaten. And there's quite a lot of interesting research to show that that is one of the most effective ways that you can just flatten out your blood glucose levels. And it is. It's a great form of biofeedback. Uh, Dr. Tom Buckley and I do this with our high-end clients as well, give them a CGM, and they come back and they're like, oh, God, I didn't realise, especially food sensitivity, because glycemic index doesn't work for everybody. Um, but you give the obvious, have a can of Coke, and you and then, so when they watch what happens on that, it is such a good way. So I love that you're doing that. Sleep better. Can I go on this one? I mentioned earlier today, Nick Littlehales, when he talks about the sleep cycle. So the sleep cycle goes for 90 to 100 minutes. And when I first read that with Nick, I was like, thank goodness. Because for years, I'm sure you heard as well, the sleep researchers, so-called experts would say, you want to sleep for eight hours. You want to recreate for eight hours. And then you want to go and work for eight hours. Who does that? Like no one. It was just just not realistic. And some people will sleep less and are fine. Some need more. So I love that you talk about sleep cycles. I do. And I there is there is just a myth out there that we require eight hours sleep per night. Like what I found with some of the the sleep professors that that I spoke to who were, you know, located at some of the top universities around the world, like Harvard and Oxford, for example, there's there's really interesting research and huge meta-analyses that that suggest that probably seven hours is closer to an ideal amount of sleep when we look at what's the ideal number to I- improve our mortality or reduce the chance of premature death. I think that that's really interesting because a lot of us beat ourselves up if we don't get eight hours because that seems to be the common recommendation 
thanks to the media messages we receive. Um, but for me, it makes me think quite differently after learning about that research and, and speaking to various professors and going, if I've got seven hours sleep, the old me used to go, oh my gosh, that's not enough. I'm not going to be functioning properly because I didn't get eight hours. But actually, uh, seven hours is is a very good amount of sleep. Something else that really surprised me is that I think a lot of people, if they don't like when they wake up or when their alarm goes off, if they're not feeling like they're ready to bounce out of bed like like an energizer bunny, then clearly their sleep was not of optimal quality. But um, this is something that I learned from uh, Dr. David Cunnington, who used to run the Melbourne Sleep Disorders Clinic, and he said that for it's like ninety seven percent of the population. Our, our natural circadian rhythm or like sleep-wake cycle is a little over 24 hours. So it's I think it's 24 hours and 20 minutes, which means that if you are living a life according to your inbuilt, pre-programmed sleep-wake cycle or body clock, if you like, you're only going to wake up feeling fully refreshed if you wake up at the end of that. So for, for the average person, it's about 24 hours and 20 minutes, which means that you need to wake up 20 minutes later every day in order to wake up feeling fully refreshed because if you're shortchanging yourself on what your body clock is naturally programmed to, you're going to wake up with a bit of sleep inertia where you feel like you haven't had the best night's sleep. So the best way of actually saying, have I had a good night's sleep, is it takes about an hour and a half to two hours after you wake to reach you know, kind of like a relatively full level of alertness. And that was a game changer for me, understanding that, because there are a lot of mornings where I wake and I'm like, oh, I still feel groggy. I don't want to get out of bed. Does that mean I should just stay in bed? But actually, no, it doesn't mean that. It just means that my body clock is naturally more than 24 hours, as are most people. And actually, I'm going to be better placed if I get up at the same time every day that's actually going to be far better for my um, for, for my energy levels and day-to-day well-being. Yeah, it's such practical info. And then it's going through that daily reset, sunshine, a bit of movement. So exactly what you're saying after eating. I often talk, Amantha, and you're know, talking to an executive group or talking to a group of people, highly intelligent, cerebral, a lot of audiences that you have as well. And you're getting asked all these really high-end cerebral questions. And sometimes I just feel like saying, go back to what people did 50 or 60 years ago. Yeah, we've overcomplicated it. Yeah, get mm. good exercise, get plenty of sleep. And if you wake up feeling tired, if you're running a farm or you're back then harvesting, you don't have time to feel good. You just move. And you know what? 90 minutes later, you feel good. And I've got to add as well, those two you've added you know, to shape up and then blood glucose levels and then getting proper sleep. So your glymphatic system, which is related to your memory, you're cleaning that every night, but your marvellous mitochondria, and you can see where I'm going, step three, of course you're going to feel good if your memory, if you've got memory recall, cognitive processing, that emotional regulation, and also those little millions of powerhouse cells, if you do those first two, you're going to feel better, right? 100%, yes. Or if you're bathing your cells in sugar, alcohol, toxic stress, uh, 
crashing your sympathetic nervous system all the time, you're going to feel shit house. But on feeling amazing, what I really like what you talk about is how to change habits and overcoming some of those cognitive hijackers. And I was reading that going, oh, which bit will I choose? What's your tip for people to feel amazing? Or what, what have you found is the greatest feedback you're getting from the book about the feeling amazing part? Mm. I think the thing that's uh, that's coming through is that it's it's quite eye-opening to go, look, there's not actually a one-size-fits-all approach to changing habits. And in the book, there is an assessment that I ask readers to do to identify what is the biggest barrier that is blocking you from making this permanent change to adopting a new health habit, whichever one in the book that you choose. Some people have a motivational hijacker, as I call it, or barrier in the way. For some people, it's more relational or social about sort of the social norms in their life. For others, it's environmental in terms of like the physical environment that they're in every day. And for others, it's cognitive if you're just feeling like mentally exhausted. And then there's different strategies that you would apply depending on what your main barrier is. And I think that that's been quite eye-opening because a lot of the time, you know, we're, we're taught by the media that's like, well, this is how you change a habit. Um, And it's like, well, actually, there's not a one-size-fits-all approach. You're far better off having a personalized plan based on what you as an individual are struggling with. So I think that that, that's that's coming through Uh, a lot uh, This doesn't compute because I've heard the pop psychology American motivation speakers. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this is the part. This is the crucible piece of the presentation. 21 days to make it. What a load of 21 days. Some people have got poor habits for 21 years so yeah the fact, <laughs> the fact that you even quoted some of the research on how long does it take to make or break a habit and your answer was really it was authentic it's complicated we don't know because everyone's different yeah absolutely <laughs> Hi again, it's Andrew, and I hope you really enjoyed that episode. We would appreciate if you helped to amplify the Performance Intelligence podcast by sharing episodes with your friends and with your colleagues by going to iTunes and leaving a rating and review. This really does help get the message out to a wider audience, and I love reading the comments as well. If you'd like to know more about booking me as a speaker at your next annual conference or company offsite, or purchasing one of the books I've written, including MatchFit, or if you'd just like to receive my monthly e-newsletter, which is called the AM Edition, that has stacks of information specific to all things human performance, go to andrewmay.com. And we'll see you on the next edition of Performance Intelligence.